Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network by and for, for now, the Australian climate community. My name is Mark and I'm the publisher and co-founder of the Climactic Collective, and apologies for the echo and the room tone in my intro here. You see, I'm recording from an empty apartment. It's just a week until my wife and I move home to New Zealand. Which, have no fear, doesn't mean anything bad for Climactic. It simply means in a short period of time, we'll be announcing that Climactic is a trans-Tasman podcast network. And if you know anyone great in the New Zealand climate community, or doing great work and ideally audio production in the Pacific Island nations of Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, Kiribati, or any others, please do get in touch with me at hello at climactic.fm. But on to today's episode. This is an episode of Climate Conversations, a show nearly as old as Climactic. It started just four months after our first episode, uh, in August of 2018. Since then, solo host, producer, and editor Robert McLean has released 331 episodes. If there's a member of the climate community that Robert hasn't spoken to, adapted a speech of, or a panel appearance, well, they wouldn't have very much company in that camp. Robert is prolific, and it was a pleasure when he joined the Climactic Collective in September of 2020. It's well overdue for one of his episodes to appear on the Climactic feed, which is by no means an exhaustive best-of list of climate podcasts, but... We do our best to make it a curated list of great audio from the climate community, and the only reason for the delay is, quite simply, Robert puts out so much, and is always working on the next best thing, so I go to release this week's episode and think, oh no, I should wait till that next one, which will only be a few days away. As publisher of The Collective, I used to say I listen to every episode published by every show, which is now over 20 shows, and for a time that was true. And I don't know if it was the disappearance of my commute or it was Robert's output that broke that streak, but but either way, it happened. So I was so happy to make the time and so grateful that I did to listen to Robert's phone interview with Jonica Newby, former host of ABC's Catalyst Science Program and author of the new book, Beyond Climate Grief, a journey of love, snow, fire, and an enchanted beer can. This is one to take a walk and listen to. You're going to want to inhabit this world of Robert in Shepparton and Jonica on her balcony surrounded by the local neighboring parrots. You're going to love this. And when you're done, head over to Climactic.fm to find over 300 more episodes from Robert, a wealth of great climate audio, interview, and recorded events. But now, enjoy this climate conversation, courtesy of Robert McLean. That is a grab from the song by Australian singer-songwriter Missy Higgins. 
The song Don't Look Down is a favourite of the author of the new book Beyond Climate Grief, Jonica Newby. This episode features a conversation with Jonica. However, before we get to Jonica, let's get through some of the formalities. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Australia's northern Victoria from the unceded lands of the Yorta Yorta people. This podcast, I hope, will allow you to better understand the implications and complications of the climate crisis. First we heard from a didgeridoo player, then an instrumental from Music for a Warming World, and you'll find a link to that Melbourne-based group in an episode note. Join me as we explore another of the many stories to be found in the vast array of climate conversation. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. Searching about, I came across this observation by Jonica. We can focus on the headlines, the hurricanes, the floods, the fires. But watching the trends over the last 20 years, I've come to realise on a personal level what climate change means to each of us. It means watching parts of your home fade away. The landscapes you love, the places your kids played, the gradual or sudden loss of what I've come to call our heart places. Fear of a possible nebulous future catastrophe is not the emotion that most gets under our skin. It's love. Uh, Welcome to Climate Conversations, Jonica. Thank you. Jonica, you've twice won the Eureka Award for Science Reporting. Uh, So what did you learn from all that? And have some of those information you've got from writing those stories made into your new book, Beyond Climate Grief? (laughs) <laughs> None of the award-winning ones, no. Although, actually, the uh, the first one was for a um, a series of stories, one of which was about peak oil back in the day, which, of course, we are pretty much in now. Uh, so it was related to climate. I have, of course, done a number of big climate specials. Um, but, uh, no, the other Eureka Award was for a special on fatherhood. Okay. So a very different topic. But similar in the sense that my real interest has been, well, I've had two main interests over my time as a science reporter. I mean, you obviously report on everything, but you but you focus on your interests. And, and one of those has been, environment and how we actually turn to a better future and make the turn Um, and the other has been what makes us do the things we do so psychology neurobiology uh, all those sorts of things those things do of course they're they're very dominant in this book beyond climate grief Um, and uh, and so I suppose the fatherhood special was uh, within that genre I watched your two-part series on climate. Carl Braganza was your guest, mm. and he's just a nice bloke, isn't he? Um, he's, he's great, yeah. He's a really nice fella. When you were working on Catalyst, at what point did it become obvious that the dumping of rubbish into our atmosphere was uh, becoming a climate crisis? Before I even started on climate on Catalyst, isn't that depressing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as we know, this is this um, this knowledge has gone back uh, 
well, to the previous century, um, the 19th century. Not only that, uh, my partner, Robin Williams, who does the science show, who makes a lot of starring appearances in the book, uh, uh, particularly <laughs> when he attempts uh, a death and resurrection, <laughs> which is a, a bold move for an atheist. Uh, but on his very first uh, science show back in the 70s, he had an expert on it warning about the dangers of CO2 and global warming, would you believe? So, yes, I'm afraid this, this predates my, uh, my joining Catalyst, but uh, over those decades that I was with Catalyst, the science firmed up. On the opening page of your book, you say you live on the south coast of New South Wales with, with Robin Williams and far too many parrots. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about the parrots? Are they yours or Robin's? <laughs> They're the universes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we have a deck and um, – uh, Oh, so they're not here, in cages. They just turn no, up. No, God, no. Yeah. Oh, no, but, they, but this is their home. As Robin says, these are our neighbours. Uh, we um, So when our dear old cat died uh, many years ago, Robin started feeding the birds here. And so now it's quite the gourmet um, selection. <laughs> and we have about 30 different species. And they they visit uh, at regular times and we've seen whole families raised, um, multiple generations now of different species of birds. And, in fact, the magpies have got three babies this year because it's been such a good year mm. uh, with all the rain. And, uh, and they come about twice a day. So... Yes, the, the far too many parrots is when my partner, Robin, actually invites them inside the house and they poop. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I can pretty much just love them. I mean, they're, they're just fabulous, aren't they? What happened with the, with the parrots after the fires? Uh, interesting. Um, I have noticed far fewer galahs this year. I don't know. I haven't looked into whether it's uh, related to the fires. Uh, we've had a lot of sulfur-crested's. Uh, other than that, I haven't particularly noticed a drop. But the other reason we would have a drop this year, to be honest, is because it's been such a good growing year that when there's a lot of native food out there, they tend not to uh, they tend to migrate around a bit more. So I don't know honestly with the fires here specifically. Mm. Obviously, when we get uh, even a tiny bit further south we are talking some really awful impacts. I mean, there's a very vivid description from um, a good friend of my mother's in Malacuta when we get to the chapter on Malacuta that um, of, of all these birds dropping out of the sky as the, um, as the fire came and it was one of the more heart-wrenching and horrifying things that the people in the path, direct path of the fires experienced um, and so, yes, of course, I understand that up and down the coast, the impact has been quite profound, but not in this tiny little bit that we uh, we didn't get hit exactly here. Mm-hmm. John, I feel that any reader will quickly understand why you wrote Beyond Climate Grief, but can we hear it in your own words? Mm. Yeah, so so I guess the, the starting point for me is that I uh, – as a science reporter for all those years that you asked me about, sure, I knew about climate change intellectually and, you know, I'd be angry and excited and and all these different emotions over the years, but it never just punched me emotionally until my actual, one of my own heart places I realised was in deep trouble. So the story there, and this is the first story in the book, it's called My Love for Snow. So 
Uh, we all have heart places, places that we love or fall in love with. And one of mine is, is the snow. And I fell in love with snow before I even met it <laughs> because, because uh, I was growing up in Perth, which is a good 3,000 kilometres from the nearest mountains. But, but, of course, snow pervades our imaginations. Snow is part of our fantasy life. Snow is in all the fairy stories that have been inherited from um, a European culture. Of course, there are Japanese and other, and other uh, snow stories across all cultures where there's snow and and then you get these epic fantasies like lord of the rings blew my tiny pre-adolescent mind when i was a teenager and so snow was something i loved in the imagination um, and i think all kids have this reaction and then of course it became something that i loved in the real where particularly when i moved uh to uh the eastern states and the, the Australia's beautiful, unique snow country, Kunamanamaji, the snowy mountains, uh, was within Kui. And so I've been down visiting and, and being in this fantasy place on weekends in between making catalysts. This is back in the day. And then I had this moment, had this moment uh, about three years ago where I was uh, in Japan. It was the first time I'd ever been there. I'd gone there for a ski holiday. It was such a treat. And there I was having a great time. I was skiing powder for the first time. I was uh, going to onsens. I was hanging out with Swiss ski instructors. Uh, hang on, what is a Swiss ski instructor doing here on holidays <laughs> in January? It's his busiest time of the year. And so I asked him and uh, my new friend Axel said, oh, well, I just wanted to get some nice snow. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that uh, Switzerland had had a green Christmas that year. And in fact, the French ski instructors had all brought their clients to Japan. I was shocked. And then later that week, half the barrier reef died. So this was 2017. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm a science reporter. I knew what that meant. And there I was on this fantasy holiday. I looked around and I went, oh, my God, reality just hit my fantasy that, that this snow country, particularly in Australia, uh, is, is really as threatened as coral. And, and that was the beginning of this descent into real climate grief, um, which took about a year to really kick in while I actually researched what was going to happen to snow. And by the end of which I was just, I was a bit of a mess. How do you feel now? Well, look, I think giving it the name grief, and I didn't have the words climate grief for what this overwhelm that I was feeling and this sadness, I didn't have those words at first. And I've come to realise that being able to name it grief is important for all of us as we hit that personal tipping point because Grief isn't just one emotion and it comes and it goes. But I think it, it's more something that you can, um, you can process in your mind that it's grief, that you don't have to feel guilty that grief is a normal and natural reaction to, to a disease really to something or someone you absolutely love. And, and certainly when I went on this journey, because that story I just told you, as you know, is only the first chapter in the book. It's, mm. the, beginning of, it's the beginning of the journey, not the end. Um, was when I did manage to get to psychologists and some philosophers and so on, that idea did come up again and again that um, people are afraid of the grief 
and they're afraid that if they really look at how how upsetting it is that they'll get stuck there but actually grief doesn't work that way um you can face the grief live the grief it means you're honoring what you love um and that's a way to sort of get through it and then use that well one of the philosophers of active hope says you use that grief then as a sort of launch pad into a call to adventure to to even look at your life and make it more meaningful and that obviously means action on climate change as well Tronica, i looked at the chapter titles and while there are many mm. those chapter titles seem to reflect the five stages of grief was that inten- <laughs> was that intentional Yes, yes, it was. So each chapter is either a um, a different emotion or a mental state. So most of the stages of grief are in there. You're right. Um, I didn't put bargaining in there, but bargaining does come up in a story with my partner Robin with his brush with cancer. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yes, it it is deliberate. Um, so. There's a chapter called Denial. There's a chapter called Grief, obviously. Um, love. The opening quote uh, is from the guy who uh, co- helped coin the five stages of grief, um, and that is uh, a quote that is, uh, you, you can avoid grief, but only by avoiding love. And it's so true. So there's a chapter called Love. There's Denial, Acceptance, and so on, and Meaning. But there are a lot of other chapters too. I couldn't just stick to that idea. Mm-hmm. So there's courage, there's humour, there's anger, there's creativity, there's there's disaster brain, which I didn't expect I was going to be writing about that, <laughs> and so on. You said you began writing the book in one voice and finished, finished it in another. Mm. Um, you said, I started the book in one world and finished in another. In another. Mm. So what world yeah. are you in now? Same one as you. (laughs) The one that we have had after the beginning of 2020 and all the events that happened then. Yes, I started writing the book in October 2019 and I I had a very clear plan, you know. I had already been dealing with my own climate grief for a couple of years by that stage and I'd uh, started to hear more and more people talking about this and I thought oh god I think I need to write a book and try and find out how we sort of deal with all this emotionally how we navigate it and so my idea was to do something like flea sales any ordinary day you know start with my own experience and then each chapter would be a different amazing person and I'd get their take on their emotions only some of which would be sadness others would be you know joy and leadership and all that sort of thing well great plan Um, and I still did a lot of that you know I interviewed surprising people like Charlie Pickering um, the comedian and, and Missy Higgins as well as experts and so on but I started writing it in October 2019, didn't I? So October 2019, within two weeks of me starting this journey of the book, uh, the fires had started here, um, up, up north of me uh, in Queensland. Um, within a few weeks, they'd come into New South Wales and blitz the town of Nimboida. And it was like this monster started stalking down the uh, the coast. And then, of course, it, it got across to other states. Uh, and and I'd always had this notion that, that we're sort of living a bit of a Lord of the Rings story because was, uh, you know, it's literally black coal versus white snow. I mean, the, the symbolism is incredible. And, and as this beast of the global warming-induced fires and the heat 
was was stalking us. Uh, everyone, even the press, turned to this sort of apocalyptic narrative, epic narrative, and so the book became a memoir, um, which I never expected. It actually became a, a journal memoir of trying to write a book in these about climate emotions in this unbelievable change. And, you know, I think we will look back on 2020 as, as a real turning point. Uh, and, and I was writing a book like this during that. So, yes, we are in the world that is not the same as it was in October 2019 for, for, for the fact that we now know just how severe the global warming fire gods can be, <laughs> um, even at this stage, you know, 2019. And we also know that disaster really can happen. We can have the pandemics that all the scientists have warned us about for forever. Mm. I noticed you trained as a veterinarian. Um, mm. And fr from a veterinarian to a, a science reporter, that's quite a journey. So <laughs> how did that all happen? Like one of my first interviewees was Peter Doherty, who was also trained oh, yeah. as a veterinarian. So he yeah, won the yeah. Nobel Prize. So. Oh, look, I'm, not, I'm not aiming for that. <laughs> no, no, it, must mean, it must say something about vets, I think. It's a very versatile degree. Yeah. I mean, look, the part of the answer to the question is, sure, I've always loved animals and the, the natural world and my grandparents um, after their exciting War in Europe, which uh, is also in the book. There's all sorts of surprising stories in the book. Yeah, I've got, I've got like, a question about that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I'll come to it. Yeah, my grandfather, the Spitfire pilot. Anyway, so they retired to a farm in Western Australia. Well, they didn't retire. They, they you know, they went there in their early 40s. And um, you see, I got distracted by my grandfather, and now you have to remind <laughs> me the question. Oh, we were talking oh, yeah, about veterinary, veterinary. Yeah, yeah that's how right. I got from there to yeah. Here. So, look, I loved animals. I loved um, the environment and uh, and I was 15 when I had to choose my course. So being a vet seemed like a really sensible thing to do. And, look, it was a fantastic degree and I'm still in contact with all those people. But the creative side of me was always there as well. And so the perfect combination was to become a science writer, TV presenter, producer, communicator and uh and my friends from vet school say, oh, yeah, you always said you wanted to be a reporter on quantum. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They're not so surprised. After reading about your experiences with Robin, I checked for CPR on the internet. <laughs> and you said you last practised CPR when you were 10. And you'd listened yeah. to an ABC broadcast where Norman Swan talked about CPR. Um, That's right, yeah. And you said... That knowledge, you actually saved Robin's life. So do you think that we should be paying more attention to what's happening around us? And do you think that we need to pay more attention to the climate crisis? Yes, I draw that bow. Um, so what? So this is chapter two, love. Yeah. And, yes, I'll surprise everyone because that chapter is actually about our experiences with Robin's cancer where he nearly died twice. And um, and as you allude to, one of those times involved me being there by myself um, with this white, white-faced person on the ground and me quaking with adrenaline and tears and horror and going, uh, I, I don't believe it. Yeah, this is, this, is, this is the moment I lose Robin and there's no one here but me. And I actually, three minutes had passed, um, I, I figured. 
in my adrenaline state. I couldn't find a pulse. And at the last minute, I just go, if I leave this any longer, there's no hope, there's no chance. So I started just thumping on his chest. And, uh, and the analogy with global warming, well, there are many, but one is that when someone gets a cancer diagnosis, you get this, um, this point where you suddenly realise that, oh, yeah, we could die. You know, it's, it's that personal tipping point. Um, up to that, we're sort of in denial. So it's the same with climate change. We sort of think, oh, yeah, it's going to be really bad, but it can't really be bad, right? But when you get someone actually get cancer and get really sick, you start going, oh, hell, if we don't do something, this is, this is really going to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, and also with cancer, it can overwhelm the system. And that's what also can happen, of course, with global warming. That's another parallel. Um, uh, but, but the other one is that, you know, when it's someone that you love, then what would you do to save the one you love? Well, whatever you can. And so I, in that moment, could do nothing but try a, a CPR that I, as you say, learnt when I was 10 and heard one thing about on Norman Swan's show actually and and I knew that that well if I did nothing there <laughs> I basically had to do something yeah. and and it and it worked it brought Robin back and uh again that's a sort of metaphor it may not have worked but if you love your environment and you love the world and you love your specific part of it your grandchildren or whatever and you think about it in those terms, then you ask yourself, what would I do to save the one you love? And whatever action you take may seem really insignificant, but it may not be. And you just you just do whatever you can to try and save the one you love, whether it works or not. Let's talk about your grandparents for a moment. Yeah. Um, you talk about the fact that your grandfather was shot down during World War Two, mm. and your but your grandmother was very stoic about the whole business, and she was convinced that he was fine. Mm. And you wrote, unless the news is definitely bad, you just assume it will all be good. Mm. Do you feel mm. that the that same dynamic exists today re, with regard to climate crisis? That most people don't see the news as definitely bad and assuming it will be all good. Yeah, that's that's a complex way of of thinking about that chapter. Um, Yes, what I was alluding to there was a kind of magical thinking for the individual that's self-protective. So my grandmother wasn't going to go into grief and overwhelm until she knew for sure that my grandfather was dead. Uh, So I call that a sort of magical hope or magical thinking. But I suppose at the back of her mind, maybe she knew that the reality was pretty possibly bad. Um, With global warming, when you know the reality, which I do, and when you know what may be ahead, uh, sometimes I've found that I do use a bit of magical thinking um, to think that everything will be fine and, and it might be. But there's a flip side to that and the danger is that if you're too optimistic and you just think, uh, you know, everything will be fine until I'm told it's not, well, then it won't be fine because you actually have to keep acting if you want that good outcome. So there's a there's a couple of, um, I suppose, complex ideas in there. So for me, the kind of magical thinking that my grandmother did to make sure that she could 
continue to function during the war um, without being overwhelmed by grief is that she just held two ideas in her mind. Papa might be dead, um, but I will assume he's alive. And I sort of think about that in terms of global warming and this idea of active hope, which I do talk about later in the book. Uh, it's like you stare at the reality of what the world could could become and you don't shy away from that. But you also have this active hope that if everybody does their little bit and you do what you can and you push as many as you can to get the social change that we need to get everyone on board, what we need to do, that if we do all that, that it will actually turn out all right. Um, but it's not the same thing as just going, oh, everything will be fine. <laughs> That's another form of denial. Do you think the school strike for climate kids are our new storytellers and should should the, the adults be listening? The adults are listening. <laughs> That's what's so fabulous. So now we're up to chapter four of the book, which is about the climate strike kids. And honestly, these kids are enough to cure anyone's grief. Um, and I say that after I go to, to visit them in Castlemaine. So um, as I said, the book takes place largely over about a six-month period. Um, and I went to see them early November. And they were just buzzing with excitement about all the strikes they were doing and all the rest. Um, and it was just so joyful. And the thing is, these kids have given a whole lot of adults hope. These kids have started to shift the hard to shift people um, and shift them along into waking up to the fact that this is actually an imminent crisis and that disaster can happen if we don't act to prevent, um, prevent it. And so the climate strike kids... They just, you know, they just put a, a, a rocket <laughs> under the rest of us. They gave those of us who were despairing hope and they gave those of us that weren't even engaging with climate yet pause for thought and that's, you know, that opens the door to them actually switching to being uh, concerned and then alarmed. But the other great thing about the Climate Strike Kids and there's a story in there that people don't really know and that's about the role of the Australian kids. So. The Castleman kids, um, you know, Victorian uh, kids, they heard about Greta all those years ago and uh, and they decided they'd have a, a small climate strike. Well, great. They didn't have any social media, which was amazing to me. They didn't have phones or anything, but they just go, oh, yeah, there's this one girl striking overseas. They didn't know about anything else. Um, and we'll just we'll do a little strike too, only with a little bit of help. Their little strike was 20 thousand people in Australia and that was the first really big um, uh, global uh, climate strike and those pictures went around the world so the Australian kids actually supercharged the whole Greta movement and there's this equation that probably a lot of your listeners are already familiar with but I'll say it anyway and that is that when you get 3.5% of the population out in the streets marching for a cause, 3.5%, that's all you need, then you actually do get profound social change. And we've seen that through history. Um, you know, the, the gay marriage thing recently is probably the most recent. But, but uh, yeah, things actually change. And that's what the Climate Strike kids are doing. They're just, they're just fabulous. Yeah. 
Do you think enthusiasm, even if it's someone else's, is an antidote for despair? Totally. <laughs> we, we need every bit of joy we can get. And that is one of the bits, um, one of the bits of actual practical advice in the book that I got from psychologists. Um, one of the one of the wise teachers, if you want to call them that, to use the sort of, um, you know, epic narrative words, wise ladies. Uh, she told me you have to look for heroes. And it's so true because Otherwise, the people who are actively working against saving the world can really get you down and it's toxic. But you look for heroes and you then balance out your sense of reality and and what most of the community feel and are doing. And, and it gives you courage and courage is contagious, um, as another person in the book explains for the chapter on courage. Um, so, yeah, if you look for heroes, their contagious enthusiasm cheers you up as well. Uh, and I've taken a lot of that advice on board. I don't, uh, don't um, read deeply in the news all the bad news about the climate. I look at it and I don't dwell on it. And then I also make sure that I'm, I'm equally consuming good news about the climate and looking for heroes and letting them make me happy. <laughs> good. The school strikes for climate emphasise for me that it's these girls and younger women who appear to be most vocal about the climate crisis. Is do you think that's right, or what's going on there? Oh, I mean, there's there's a, quite a few sort of gender type things there, but let me just push it back to this idea of emotion. I think that one of the emotions that um, has been used predominantly to communicate the climate crisis is fear. And I totally get that. And, and that fear is super important and it works. Um, but fear and fear, you know, we, we saw how important it was to save lives um, during the fires and COVID. Uh, but fear is designed for when the crisis is actually right upon us. You know, it is designed by evolution to spike and then drop. If we carry chronic fear with us, then that's anxiety and it can actually be uh, crippling. So fear hasn't necessarily worked that well as, uh, look, it's, had, it's got a use, but there's some limit to that use. So if you want to look at another emotion that drives action on climate, it's love. Now, you look at, it's a bit of a cliche, but I do think love is the most important. And if you look at the, even the neurochemistry of love, you know, it's not designed to spike and drop. Um, apart from, you know, when you first fall in love maybe. <laughs> but but it's, um, it's designed to, for the long term. You're, you know, we're, we're programmed to love those that matter most to us for our lifetime. Sure, we can fall in and out of love a bit, but generally, you know, that those emotions are designed to be there all the time. Um, and we have that love for landscapes as well. I, I have this notion of heart places, you know, the places that we fall in love with, which evolution made us fall in love with places because they're the things that sustain us and our homes are, you know, what provided food and shelter and, and the place for our community to reside. So love is there to make us protect um, what we value at all costs. You know, that's where courage comes in. And I just feel that 
some of us and more and more of us are starting to think about our action for climate change that way because we're doing it because we'll do whatever it takes to save what we love. And look, I don't know whether that feeds into the gender um, situation with the actual kids. Um, it might, but there is a feeling that of, of the greater good, you know, that, that we're doing this for uh, love of our community, our families, our place. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I, I don't want to gender, I, I, I don't want to be too specific about genders, but in general, the male approach has been a bit more, and you can see this in the books, um, anger and here's what we're going to do. And the women have more space for sadness and love, and, and that's the path for action. So both, mm. of those, um, both of those paths to action, emotional paths to action, are incredibly valid, but I do think they do split a little bit along gender lines. Yeah, I was going to say that men appear to be equally concerned, but they prefer the hard-edge mechanical and scientific stuff. Yeah. Whereas yeah, and women, I'm finding that in the books that yeah, they want to read and write. Yeah, whereas too, women yeah. seem more attracted to the human aspect of the dilemma so. Yeah, and, and I know it's a generalisation, but that's why this book specifically was about emotions because it's how I feel. Um, I, the, those angry books don't, they just make me feel worse. Mm. Um, and I wanted a book that, or I wanted a journey. I, look, I was just looking for a way to try and not get caught up in the anger um, because I found it so paralysing, but to actually... Um, find a way emotionally through that that concentrates on on the good people have to offer and acting because you want to do right by by the, your loved ones and your community which comes through very strongly in the book when we actually get to the point where of course the fires come and overwhelm yeah. my mother's home um in Malakuta and and then we have covid and you see writ large that most people, let's just ignore the 20% or whatever who are sociopaths, most people, when they actually realise the crisis is upon us, are just driven by these strong human emotions to help, you know, to offer um, succour, to offer humour, to offer shelter, to donate all the things that make us human and give me, give me hope for our reaction to climate change down the track. We are listening to Jonica Newby talk about her new book from New South Publishing, Beyond Climate Grief. I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations. Let's listen some more to Jonica. After listening to some school kids talk about the climate crisis at a public event in the Sydney street, you wrote, My God, they are impressive. I thought the same thing when at a school strike for climate at Perigian Beach on Queensland's Sunshine mm. Coast. Um, they were mostly girls, but mm. um, I know I wouldn't have coped near so well when I was 16 or 17. How do you think you would have coped at that age? <laughs> I think these kids are amazing. And it comes back to, you know, I know parents will be worried about, and that's one of the chapters in the book too, I wanted to look for parents about what, what you know, how, how to deal with their kids' anxiety. But, look, one of the things... I think I hold on to as a positive out of this sense of crisis that's enveloping us um, and more and more, more of us are realising that 
is that it actually gives um, this next generation a real sense of purpose. And I don't think that's a bad thing as long as they can manage their own emotional reactions as they go on. And again, that will be something on an ongoing basis that they look out for. But Lordy, hasn't it brought the best out of these kids? I mean, they make amazing speeches, they get organised, they're so professional in what they do, and it's all about heart and community. Yes, of course, they're pr- impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's undergirded by love, isn't it? So Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, in fact, they find a lot of community in these strikes. They, they actually really enjoy them for all that it's, you know, it's um, – about something that that shouldn't be happening is actually galvanising and I think uh, the people I've seen, their lives have been actually enriched by getting so involved in such such an important action. In the chapter about creativity, you write about meeting Australian singer-songwriter Missy Higgins and you mentioned in her 2018 album, Solace Soldier. Mm. Um from which your favourite song is Don't Look Down. What role do you think music will play in in avoiding climate grief? Well, Missy herself says that sometimes songs can pull at your emotions and in a way that words can't and just tug them out until they're all out in the open. And and I, I feel that. I mean, all greatly emotional times I think for, for any of us in our personal lives we can we can um we can relate to songs <laughs> we start start listening to them and and her album Solastalgia which is about her climate grief is so powerful um and so beautiful and it makes a few reappearances in the book as you know because <laughs> I played it on Christmas Eve on this sort of apocalyptic Christmas Eve and, and me and my Ro- we and Robin we're alone here and we and just dance, dance with the tears <laughs> running down our faces. Yes, tears of love and tears of joy. So, you know, songs unite us. Songs, um, songs give us courage. Songs are a language of emotion and that's why they've been so important in protest marches and all the rest. And even, you know, when you look at the climate strike kids, they're all playing, in fact, they were playing Queen you know, <laughs> when I went to one of theirs. They're dancing away because music evolved to actually unite us and make us feel part of a group and also to express an emotional, um, it's like an emotional contagion. So there's that role. And then the other part of it is actually just creativity in general. When we're feeling stuff that overwhelms us, for many of us, uh, part of our personal therapy, if you like, or, or processing of those emotions is to get creative. And and I guess this book is mine. You know, it, it literally is. It's quite a novelistic book in the end, I think you'll agree. And, and it was myself being overwhelmed by these emotions and not just seeking some expert advice but more than that needing some creative outlet to to tell a story that would express the power of these feelings and Mm. and how we get through them yeah several months ago i talked with the sydney-based social researcher rebecca huntley oh yeah um for this podcast and um and she mentioned in her book how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference and becoming a campaigner for action on climate change had become her hero project. Mm. 
So is this book something of a hero project for you? It is. And Rebecca, um, the slant of the two books is different. But, yes, I, I loved her book. I read it last year when it came out. And we were actually on stage together in Adelaide um, for the Writers Week. And and she also talks about all the different emotions. So it's fantastic that these sort of female writers, if you like, are um, are writing these books. So hers, as you say, takes the angle of how to talk to your friends, which is so important. I mean, I understand that in my own family, my, my father took a long time to even convince that his um, that climate change was real. Got there eventually, but, mm. you know, that, that conservative political um, mm. alliance and it's quite hard to get through. Super important. My book is, sorry about that beeping, my book is actually about, I suppose, self-care, um, if you want to use the cliche, but it's obviously much more of a narrative than that. But, yes, it is my hero project in the sense that there was nothing else I could do. I should have been going off and getting a job. You know, I should have been going off and, I don't know, making crap science television for Americans, <laughs> which, you know, would have paid the bills. Um, but you can see what I thought of that. What What happens when you hit this personal tipping point, which Rebecca talks about her own as well, is that, some of the things you were going to do just don't feel meaningful anymore and you feel that you want to do something active and work out what your skills can bring to this. So this book I hope will help other people. That's the main reason for for writing it, to try and strike a chord with others who are feeling these feelings that they have nowhere to put. And I don't know what's going to happen after that. My eyes are open to other opportunities to see whether I can contribute to climate action in this way or that. Um, and my eyes are just open. But, yes, it has been a turning point in that the things that seemed important before um, no longer do. Yeah. And other things that are really important have come to the fore, like me sitting here watching the parrots on the deck right now. There are 40 parrots, 40 <laughs> glass have come, turned up while we've been on this podcast. <laughs> And they are all happily grazing as, as the sun begins to set. And how joyful is that? So I am good, so yeah. appreciative of every moment of joy and I'm making lots of time that I never had while I was on Catalyst to spend time with friends and family and loved ones and be in nature and all those things as well. Your friend's daughter said you're going to die of old age and I'm going to die of climate change. Mm. How does that resonate with you? That was um, sobering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't realise that that is what had um, was going around the teenage ether because uh, I I don't have kids that age and the I was shocked that she actually thought she was going to die from climate change because this is such an extreme either or. I, I, I've wondered a bit if it's a form of almost denial because it's not denial but it's like it's it's overreach we can't know that we're going to die of climate change so I think it just exposed that even if kids haven't been uh, woke in inverted commas to climate before um, when they are they can pick up some things that are actually potentially destructive even for them so it's so important that parents and others um, have conversations with their kids that don't paint a false picture but still can correct um, 
any misunderstandings such as I'm definitely going to die of climate change because we can't know that. Um, and that chapter was actually the anecdote that I use at the beginning of the chapter called Worry, where I deliberately um, went to see a number of psychologists to try and get the best advice on how parents should deal with their, their kids' climate anxiety. Um, and uh, and there's some really good practical things in there. And this is also where the idea of looking for heroes came from. Mm. So um, and and that that chapter actually is, is has some really good advice in it. You write a lot about fear, and fear, you argue, is essential to finding food, finding a mate, mm. reproducing, and creating a happy family. Do you think oh, well, our love, love is yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think our present comfortable way of living has uh, quashed that fear somewhat? Um, of course it has, of course it has, you know, and, but I do think that, you know, I've written a chapter in there called disaster brain. One of the themes in the latter part of the book is why we never think disaster is going to happen to us. Um, because we don't, I mean, we evolved this kind of denial that, uh, is there because it had to be from an evolutionary point of view, we had to deny the knowledge in ourselves that we were going to die one day. Otherwise we would have never got out of the cave we wouldn't have been able to um evolve consciousness it's been argued if we didn't also evolve a pretty strong ability to deny however um when it comes to a real crisis that threatens your own health or the health of the lands in which you live um, and that includes the whole planet obviously then there comes a point where we have to have a brain flip and we have to actually realise that, um, no, the crisis is on us. That's when fear does come in and we have to flip into a different state. And you can see that writ large with Robin's denial of his own illness when he had cancer, you know. I, I did CPR on him, brought him back to life, and he refused to go to the hospital. I mean, he said, I just fainted. Yeah, <laughs> mate. Um, and so that denial is really important and it can make us do all sorts of amazing things. But at some point we actually have to flip our brains and realise that a disaster is upon us and take action to avoid disaster. And so when we do do that brain flip, which is into a more more fear, threat, aware state, you know, a little bit of fear, just enough to be motivating, uh, then our brain state's quite different. So all of us went into, I had to add a chapter in the book called Disaster Brain after the fires really bombed the south coast and my mum's town of Malakuta and there's some incredibly vivid descriptions in the book that sound like they've been in a movie. They really do. Uh, but... Uh, then we're all in a fear state uh, called disaster brain. But what it does, it makes you really focus on the problem, on the on the threat, and uh, and makes you very aware of what you need to do to try and uh, avert the threat and stay safe. So, yes, when we've been living our comfortable lives um, for the past few generations, particularly if we're, you know, multi-generation Australian, not Indigenous, I haven't had, um, you know, I'm basically talking about privileged people, right? Uh, the experience of the possibility of disaster hasn't actually been in our lifetime. And so the events of 2020, uh, I think, were perhaps a necessary wake up and I hope that now that many of us have seen that that disaster can come pandemics fires that we might be a little bit more threat aware on the 
biggest picture of all, which is global warming. So that's where I put some of my hope, actually, that even some of the more recalcitrant politicians, not not the full-on deniers, but, you know, the ones who just don't think it's that important, will gradually um, start to get a bit of that fear and uh, and realise that this is a real crisis and they do have to act on it. Can you tell me can you something? Can with Boris Johnson? Yeah. I, I can hear your parrots. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. Yes, there are our neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me something about the New South Wales Minister of Energy and Environment, Matt Keane? He was one of my heroes. Who'd have thought? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I had this incredible day. This is in the chapter called Leadership, which was December 10, I think it set then. And and in Sydney, we had the worst possible day. I mean, it, it was, it felt like a living in a post-apocalyptic novel during that time. It really did for those of us in parts of New South Wales and Canberra. Because we had, by that stage, we'd had something like six weeks where we really hadn't seen the sun except just this baleful red apocalyptic presence where we hadn't been able to breathe properly, where we'd had to close the doors on days because um, the smoke was so thick. And, you know, on that day I sort of, you know, literally waded my way through this post-apocalyptic miasma. You couldn't even call it air and got into this conference room um, where they were having this conference about smart energy it should have been just a straightforward conference, but but you know the smoke was invading the the air conditioning and 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 it was swirling outside and it looked like we were in a movie. It, it really did, and um, that feeling of having fallen into a novel or a you know plot of Lord of the Rings or some some film it really became very heightened at that point. And then up stands this guy to speak early in the day. It's the Minister for Environment, Matt Keane, in New South Wales. And I'm not expecting anything from him because at that point the uh, the New South Wales um, government was denying that the fires even had a link with climate change, denying that. Anyway, he stood up, made his speech and said, let's be clear, these fires are a direct result of the sorts of things that, that the scientists have told us that climate change will bring this is, you know, and he basically went on to say, this is a moral issue. We must um, win this war. And announcing genuine shifts in New South Wales policy to uh, to renewables. So, you know, better late than never, uh, absolutely. And he's been a champion within the, uh, the Conservative governments and it's so important because they're in power. Mm. We need the people in power to have champions within them to um, to be courageous. Yeah, we sure do. And do we? what needs to be done. Yeah. yeah. So so he became a hero. <laughs> you wrote about the power and importance of la- laughter, and that reminded mm. me of being on a tram in Melbourne or oh, several or oh, a couple of years ago, listening to two Asian girls talk about. Well, they were talking in a language which I didn't understand, and suddenly they burst out laughing, and uh, I laughed with them. But I caught one of the girl's eyes and she sort of knew I got the joke, but I didn't. Mm. But I enjoyed the laugh. So can you talk briefly about the importance of laughter? Totally. But even before, you know, this book took this dramatic turn into another world and became this epic narrative, um, I'd always wanted to include a chapter on humour and I always wanted to interview, if I could, Charlie Pickering and Craig Rucastle. And there are a number of reasons for the humour side of it. 
but one of them was that when Robin, again, when Robin was really sick, I found that the worse he got, the more jokey I made the little newsletters that I was writing because the humour cheered him up, made him laugh, um, made us all laugh. And it made me think about the role that humour plays when times are tough. Uh, so you sent you those look, newsletters to your friends, didn't you? Is that right? I, yeah, that's right. The friends and family, mm. and uh, and they got quite wild and ridiculous. The sicker <laughs> he got, and and they made Robin laugh. And you know, the bloody things went viral because Robin started sending them to all his friends as the real bulletins. And so, <laughs> so yeah, being able to do it in with a bit of laugh, just kind of you know, just kind of calmed everyone down enough to actually be able to deal with things. And so I knew a bit about the evolutionary biology of laughter because I'd, I'd interviewed years earlier Robin Dunbar at Oxford for a special I did on friendship, and I wanted to explore that further in this book. And so when you look at laughter, it's a very ancient mechanism. It evolved probably pre-human, you know, because chimpanzees have a form of laughter. And it's always accompanied with play and um, and a sense of uh, safety. Um, so you can have mock aggression in a, in a play fight, but the laughter tells you that it's it's not real aggression. It's okay. And, and when you look at what happens when you get a group of people laughing, it's actually, as you said, incredibly contagious so much that you laughed even when you couldn't understand the joke. <laughs> yeah. Just the feeling of someone else laughing um, makes you makes you feel good. And this is what it does. It, 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 it releases all these endorphins. It releases bonding chemicals. So, you know, you caught this girl's eye and she smiled at you because um, she knew you were smiling too and laughing. Uh, it it defrags our physiology. It, it kind of drains us of the stress um, hormones as well. So, you know, this is super important. And when you look then at what happened in the fires, for example, um, and you can understand why, you know, ambulance officers and people like that who go through all these stressful situations come home and make a whole lot of stupid jokes about it with their friends because mm. it does these incredibly important coping things to us and makes us feel so bonded with the people that we've just had this experience with. And so after the fires, I was actually asking a number of people, I said, hey, have you made any jokes? Which is like, I was the first journalist that ever asked them that question. <laughs> <laughs> and they all smiled and said, yeah, actually. And so, um, uh, the, you know, the girls were going, well, you know, who'd lost their home, they were joking amongst each other oh, well, you know, I'll just go and sulk in my home then. And then the other one's saying, oh, I'll just go and sulk in my pile of ashes then. Stupid joke. But the point is that it actually is very bonding and makes them feel good. And and actually that's the chapter where the enchanted beer can comes in too, which, again, is just a, not even really a joke. It's just a really sweet story that um, that makes people smile. <laughs> You're right that it's horrifying being a science reporter. Why is that? Oh, well, I guess anybody would be horrified by the news that we get about climate all the time. But the part that really gets to one <laughs> is knowing that it's living with that fearsome knowledge deeply and seeing how few people actually get that reality in their bones so it's like you have I ended up calling it staring at the beast 
Um, because again, I think when these epic events happen, you are forced to draw on epic narrative language, you know, or biblical language. It, it's the only way we can sort of address these these major um, ideas. And so, to stare at the beast, which the scientists who do the IPCC have to, for example, which which science reporters do, which any of it, which you do because you do this podcast, which any of us who actually are in the alarm category, we stare at the beast and it hurts. It burns our Cassandra eyes, and and and. So that's why it's horrifying being a science reporter. But the other thing is because over the years we've had the the evil, you know, the trolls go for us as well, which is really horrible. When you stand up about climate, you get um, you get trolled, mm. uh, and it's it's um, it's not easy for anyone. Um, and there are scientists who've had, you know, my friend Ove, the um, coral scientist. He had his home egged while his daughter was home, and you know it makes me feel so unsafe. How do you respond when a guest is uh, just talking tripe? Like, how do you maintain some balance, and how do you stay? Happens all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I'm trying not to. It depends on the setting. So there are times if Robin's with me, it's all over because he just gets angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I'm on my own, which has quite often happened um, a lot because I, I surf on the south coast. I'm not very good, but I'm out there out the back with, you know, with the long borders. I, I'm a very mixed pe- group of people that I mix mm. with. Um, I should, I should say my, my daughter loves surfing. Yeah, well, I'm sure she's a lot better at it. Than oh, me, I'm, not, yeah, I'm, not sure about, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> she loves it. Yeah, no, it's it's lovely. It's a wonderful thing to do. And, um, and you know, skiing, um, I ski with all sorts of people. Because we, you know, those of us who have our own gear and are doing it on the cheap um, tend to be the better skiers. And I'd say about fifty percent are kind of in the climate denial or, or climate, you know, it's not really a big deal category. So I just, I guess, I just get out my patience um, mm. in those circumstances because we're having a nice time. It's probably a good relaxed setting to do what Rebecca Huntley has recommended and and I just go, well, you know, I'm a science reporter and here's what I've seen and gentle my way through it. But there are certainly times at dinner parties where I've just gone, oh, my God, you arrogant, arrogant man who <laughs> thinks you run the universe. And I've said to them occasionally, look, I'm so pleased you've convinced me now. Your, your sample group of one, you have more rain in your property last year. Excellent climate science is all wrong you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. but i try to restrain those impulses <laughs> mm. you wrote beautifully about christmas eve 2019 on your small beach mm. cottage what was it what was that all about well i know what it was about i read the book but and i'd encourage people to read it but that was beautiful stuff you liked that bit yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it comes straight after the chapter called Denial, where, you know, I don't think the fire's going to come from me which or my family, which is ironic because um, I was writing a chapter called Denial. And, um, and, and what happened a few days later, which was, um, yeah, the, the, the climate fire gods attacked six towns here in New South Wales and, and Victoria and, uh, and more, of course, and, and also Adelaide and Kangaroo Island. But um, but Christmas Eve is like this back to this sense of the magical. So yes, so we have this sense of the magical that somehow 
on Christmas Eve, the, the disasters will go away and it'll just be like normal. And of course, that's not the case. <laughs> but, um, but so late in the day, I decided, yes, I would still go ahead with my Christmas Eve plans. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I describe in detail, you know, the shopping, the, the cooking, and these details of the things that give us joy. And the joy actually does spread and create this magical Christmas bubble. Mm. And that's the whole point. And that chapter is called Joy because we all know that one of the real ways we get through anything that we find emotionally hard is to cling on to all those moments of joy that we have. And there are so many. And I think, you know, when times are tough, they also, or at least challenging, they also make us really focus on gratitude for what's there. So that day became just this magical, joyful evening with beautiful food and funny presents and mm. dancing till the tears ran down our faces to Missy Higgins. And then there was even a Christmas miracle right at the end, which maybe I'll save that for, um, for people who read the book. Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> Uh, John Lee, you cry a lot. Are you naturally a crier or is that a symptom of your climate anxiety? Both. Both? Both, yeah. So, so you're, you're naturally I, I a crier? I'm more of a crier than some, but there's quite a few who are like that. I remember seeing a, um, a funny you know, film about network news uh, a few uh, decades ago with Holly Hunter and she was, she was like a major producer on a network news show and she started every day bursting into tears. Once she got that out of her system, she'd just go on. <laughs> you know, some people are more inclined to do that. But absolutely it was a symptom of my climate grief. I had about a year and a half where, and that's actually, you know, when I said I hit the skids, it was I started crying a lot more. Every time I read the news about the climate, I was just overwhelmed. Um, and so it, it it has that has that was what let me know that I was actually in quite a transformed state because of the climate grief. And then and then when the fires happened and I went into disaster brain. I'd say I cried nearly every day. Don't worry, there aren't that many tears in the book, but <laughs> but it's just a, an honest appraisal of of how I felt. But to be honest, ninety percent of the time, those tears, and I think a lot of women I've spoken to would relate to this, and Robin was the same. So it's not just women. Um, you were crying out of pride, so it wasn't it wasn't the awful things that made you cry a lot of the time. It was the wonderful things. Like I would see, uh, you know, I don't know if any of you guys had this, but you'd see a, the RFS workers and you'd try not to burst into tears. You know, it was, they were tears of pride in other people and gratitude um, in many cases of being moved by people um, rather than being sad or despairing. Sometimes there were those tears because of the grief, but actually a lot of the tears later on were just sheer pride and compassion and gratitude for people who all these ordinary heroes who just stepped up and did, you know, just did their job, but that was amazing. Your description of what happened at Malakuta during the fires was compelling reading. Mm. How did you manage to track down all that? information that was pretty detailed <laughs> stuff 
Yeah, I did and I didn't. Um, I've not seen anything put together like that. Um, and I've had a few people read it now and say, oh, it's the first time I actually understood what it must have been like. I simply went into Malakuta as soon as I could because those of you who know um, know it was cut off for three weeks. My mother actually got out just beforehand. Um, so she was a bit of a circulating climate refugee till she could get back in and I actually arrived there the same day she did. We were both pretty emotional on re-entry because you drive through hours of blackened forest. And so those tears, yes, were grief tears because, you know, the overwhelm of of that loss, you, your body just I – don't, I don't know anyone that hasn't reacted emotionally um, in that, particularly in that first few months after the fires went through to drive through that area. But anyway, we got there and I stayed oh, a week and I had no pre-plan other than one friend of my mum's that I really wanted to talk to and find out what had happened with him. And uh, and those people that ended up making up the story uh, in the book that is so compelling, they were just people I ran into. I didn't set out with any kind of plan. I just met a few people, you know, Dale I met on a boat when I was doing a little tour with mum. So one thing led um, to another. Yeah, Pam was a friend of mum's and mm. I knew she'd stayed to defend. Nicholas and the disaster movie Dash, oh, mm. my goodness, what a story. He's going to be a bit famous when this book mm. starts being read because he hasn't told anyone that story mm. about how he dashed down this corridor of fire on his bike and then, you know, raced down the flaming uh, stairs and raced around and, and you know, it, it literally was like a scene from the movie and, uh these were just ordinary people telling their stories. None of them were professional firefighters. None of them were RFS. They were just people who were there. And I guess if you talked to anyone who was there, you'd have had equally compelling stories. But I've got to say, those particular stories did seem to come together in a most extraordinary way. Again, you ask, will we learn that hotter world brings even worse fires? and act to reduce our carbon emissions, or will we distract ourselves with nonsense and noise? So how are we going? Are we, uh, are we acting <laughs> to reduce our emissions, or are we distracting ourselves with nonsense and, nonsense and noise? Well, I guess you can't call a pandemic nonsense and noise, but, <laughs> but um, it's, easy. it's easy for politicians and others and all of us to distract ourselves with whatever's right in front of us, uh, isn't it? So do you think the pandemic's taken the oxygen out of the climate conversation? Uh, of course it has at one level because, um, you know, there would have been massive protests in March uh, of 2020 if the pandemic hadn't come along. Um, there would have been a huge national movement to do something. There would have been perhaps that 3.5% marching in the street. That's not the way history unfolded. and. You know, you can get stuck in regrets about the timing of everything, but we only get to live forward. We don't get to live backward. So one of the things that I guess I've taken hope from in the pandemic is that it's shaken everybody out of a degree of complacency and back to that idea that we have to become more threat aware in, or, uh, in order to act for climate. I hope that long term more 
people will just have that sense that, oh, God, yes, it is possible that my beautiful, perfect, gentle life that's always been the way it was, not not that lives feel like that, they feel very stressed off, <laughs> but, but, you know, the life as it was. Um, yeah, actually, that can be overturned. Maybe, maybe I should have been more worried about climate change than I have been, you know. So, so I don't know how the lessons are going to go from the fires. Yeah. Obviously, for those of us that are alarmed, we're still alarmed. For those that weren't, they they distract themselves with noise and and mistake the lesson for something else. Yeah. Long term, though, I still. I still, my active part of my active hope is that we'll look back on 2020 as a psychological turning point uh, internationally. How do we live a good and happy life under the weight of or the fearsome knowledge of the climate change? So, do you have any answers to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my starting question. That's right. Uh, look, there's a few strategies in the end that in the book. Um, I think I think the first thing I alluded to right at the beginning was that it came about that the sadness um you ha- you have to live with the grief you have to acknowledge that it is grief and acknowledging it as grief helps you move through it there was a line that um I actually didn't end up putting in the book because I was trying to trim it back but there's this beautiful line from Joanne Macy who's this eco-philosopher saying um Climate grief is like Drano for the soul. <laughs> like it, it goes, flows through you, and uh, and then you know you're you're ready to use those emotions and harness those emotions for a new adventure. And I think that's certainly the case um, for any of us, all of us that go through that transition. How do I live a good and happy life? You've got to be acting in some way and also accepting what you can't do. We don't all have the superpower abilities and and without slipping into denial we also have to accept what we can do and what we can't do so do what we can accept what we can't but that doesn't mean slipping into denial and it does mean I think for me just do a bit better each year do a bit better regularly look keep your eyes open for you know where you might transit your money across get the solar panels you haven't got yet all those things just just be all the time a work in progress doing more but the other one the other some of the other big psychological strategies one that resonated most with me was this idea of active hope because I really struggled with hope because they say you've got to have hope it's like well I'm a science reporter I've seen all the all the future you know laid out the most likely future if we don't change that doesn't give me a lot of hope and I keep getting my hopes dashed when you have like a like a Trump voted in and and these things happen that just seem so regressive. And mm. so the idea of active hope and of courage takes away that that pressure to have hope and have your hopes dashed. It just, at one level, it's sort of like, look, the worst could happen. What you can do is uh, is put everything you can without killing yourself, <laughs> put everything you personally can, some people are stronger than others, put everything you personally can into helping 
catching an inspiring vision and helping create the future you want to see. And that's your gift of active hope is how it's described. It's well described in the book, but it was actually one of the more useful philosophies. And then, of course, the other stuff is all all what happens is you go through any major transformational experience of, of profound grief. You do look for more meaning in your life. You do look for more compassion and gratitude. Um, these cliches, they turn out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, and then you, you really concentrate on, on joy and uh, my birds have all left for the evening. <laughs> but there are other things happening around and they're all, uh, you know, all, all those moments of joy, that they, uh, they're what sustain us. You mentioned that Dr. Rob Gordon argues that acceptance is fundamental to resilience. What level of acceptance of the climate crisis do you see within the Australian community? Acceptance has a lot of layers in psychology. Um, Acceptance is partly that, yeah, acceptance, first of all, acceptance that climate change is real. More and more of us are going there. There's still a large proportion that don't accept that that's one type of acceptance for those of us that are in the category of concern to alarmed which again i think is these are rebecca huntley's you know the sociologist category categories um be most people listening to your uh, podcast acceptance doesn't mean accepting that that climate change is like oh it's all over that's not what it means at all it means um acceptance of your own limitations, I suppose. It means accepting that things might not necessarily turn out how you hope. It's just about, I guess, finding the things that allow you to protect yourself psychologically so that you're not paralysed or overwhelmed by these realities, but you're actually um, energised and able to act. Because for those of us who become overwhelmed we we're in danger of switching off and we need to find a balance for ourselves so everybody's going to have their own action that they do or multiple actions everyone's going to have their own balance but you do need to accept that these feelings are real you need to deal with them change what you can that's the action part and accept what you can't without hopefully uh, letting it completely overwhelm you. Having said that, grief is a roller coaster. It comes back and forth, and it's perfectly fine that there'll be times where it just rolls right over you. Mm. Johnny, you'll, you'll, you'll be relieved to know that I've got two more questions. Well, I've got many more questions, but I've got, I've got two. <laughs> I old. know it's such a it's such a conversation. I don't want to <laughs> have people go on for too long, but, um, at the, at but yeah, I, I think this is the conversation lots of people want to have and don't know who to have it with. Yeah. Is this whole idea of how we feel about it and how to live with those feelings? At the end of the book, under practical advice mm. for living through a disaster, and under point seven, mm. you say or you encourage people to be confident in the future. So Mm. I have to ask you, are you confident in the future? Well, that was in the context of people who've lost their home in the fires. So it is very important to be confident that you will end up with a home and a good life. And and it's true, you will. Um, And that came from Rob Gordon. Um, Unless you get stuck in that kind of toxic anger, which unfortunately some people do, particularly men but women as well. It's just, again, another gender tendency. 
am I confident in the future? I am confident that there will be a world. I hope, you know, a beautiful world. I hope that it will be the best possible one that I can see from this point. Am I confident that we will turn things around in time to save the snow in Australia? Honestly, I don't think I should answer that question. (laughs) Um, Confidence in the future? Oh, God, it gets a bit meta, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, 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 there's an acceptance that uh, we must do our best and that's where the active hope lives. Yeah. And, um, and I suppose at one level the inner optimism in there, the soul does cling to hope and optimism. So I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I can't know. Now, it's not a question I'd like someone to ask me because I'm not sure how I'd answer it either. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you put me on the spot. On the spot. Um, but, I mean, I think that is the reality of staring at the, at the beast, at staring at the fearsome knowledge. You have to accept that it is possible that some quite un- terrible losses are ahead. Mm. We won't lose everything. You know, and, and, and for the kids the next generation, they won't know the things that I mourn. You know, mm. they won't know. They'll have never, they'll have never even loved them. Yeah. So for them, it won't have the same grief connotation that it has for me. So I suppose that's a confidence in the future too. That that all these um, amazing kids who are going forward and fighting for anything, everything, they'll still have a great world. You know, and a great future in one way or another. Um, it just might lack some of the things that have really mattered to me. It'll be different, won't it? Yeah. Yes, mm. it'll be different. Conversations can quickly change course, and this one switched to Twiggy Forest. As I said, this comes back to looking for heroes, and who'd have thought, you know, um, Twiggy Forest and the boy at lectures really cheered me up. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Talking about Twiggy Forest. Um, yeah. Um, I'm involved with some local people here in Shepparton and we're really keen to get Twiggy Forest to town. Oh, uh, good luck. <laughs> That's all I say. I think he's pretty um, he's pretty uh, busy and tightly controlled. But, um, yeah. but, yeah, I mean, the fact that you do have Twiggy, Mike Cannon-Brooks, um, I mean, and that comes back to, you know, one of the ideas, if you remember in the book, is everyone has to bring their tribes. And, yeah. you know, yeah. um, Cannon Brooks and Twiggy, although they're mavericks, they're both very powerful tribal leaders. Yeah, and uh, and so by by so publicly uh, staking this as a moral and business um, question, they are helping shift the groups that yeah, are, are, yeah. that are most important to shift. After more than an hour of talking, we wrapped up the conversation. Okay. All right. It was just really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, th- thanks, Johnny. I appreciate that. Most welcome. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. bye. I trust you enjoyed listening to Jonica. I certainly enjoyed interviewing her. I'll put a link to the Missy Higgins Solace Soldier album in the episode notes. Also, I'll put a link to at least two of the episodes where Jonica talks about the climate crisis during a time with the ABC show Catalyst. Climate Conversations is produced with the support of the Melbourne-based Climactic Collective and is one of more than 20 podcasts that make up that collective. More about the collective and the associated podcasts can be found at Climactic 
www.climatechangeconversations.com.au. Responsibility for climate conversations rests with me, but you could help with the questions. And if something is not being asked of whom it should be asked, then please make a suggestion and contact me on r.mclean7 at icloud.com. To access earlier episodes of Climate Conversations, go to the Climactic Collective website. Click on the Climate Conversations artwork and that will allow you to look at all the past episodes. In all the chaos and rhetoric surrounding the climate conversation, I urge you to put your faith in genuine climate science. And remember that action is the best antidote to despair. And that, I must note, is one of the drivers of this podcast. Of course, we should also remember that we always need to be kind, for whoever we meet is fighting a great battle. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. And so until we talk again... Please take care. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media dot studio.